My name's Alan Knight. I'm the Sustainability Director for BITC, um, and I've been asked to sort of chair and introduce the sort of the concept of if products could talk, um, what do they mean for your brand? So the, so the plan is, uh, we've got Vanina, David, and Geraldine who will be speaking after I sort of give some sort of some thoughts and some provocations on, on this notion of, of your products. Um, so I think, because we've only got an hour, I'll probably just sort of plough into sort of my observations on this notion of products. So the first thing I need to do is find my slides. Hi. Um, so this is the title of my talk, If Products Could Talk. And, and the idea really is, it's sort of talking to a, an older narrative I used to say a lot in, in, in earlier roles. And it was really just me to sort of drive home a point which was a lot of people getting very confused with CSR and making it was all about process and KPIs. That really matters. Um, but what I really wanted to do with this notion was actually sort of put sustainability and, and, and responsibility at the heart of the product story. And so the notion is, it's a very simple sort of metaphor. You're at a conference and the chairman says, and the next speaker is, and unknown to you, it's your product. Yeah? And the, and the question really is, um, what, would this, what would this product say? So here the exam question is, my impact on people and the nature. And because in the early 1990s, you'd be surprised how many MDs in particular didn't actually know the answer to that question. And so the sort of the, really the exam question at that time really was, how do you feel? You know, you're at a conference, your product just walks onto the stage, and somebody's going to talk to you about its impact on the environment. What, what's it going to say? And if you don't know, you don't care. Are you really anxious because you do know and you know the story's not great? Or are you actually sitting there quite smug, quite proud, thinking, great, this is going to be really useful for us? And it really just drove the notion of, of responsibility into the core business purpose, which was those particular products. And of course, what happens is it got very confusing very quickly. And when people started finding out their stories, there was always good news and there was bad news. And, and in all that sort of complexity of what do you mean by corporate responsibility? What we were sort of boring down and saying is good corporate responsibility is having your entire product story in the public domain and you still being comfortable. I.e., everybody understands that product stories aren't all just good news. So good responsibility is having enough comfort to say, but the bad news is, and this is what I'm doing about it. So it's just a very simple device, a very simple metaphor for really explaining what we meant by corporate responsibility. But of course, what's happening now, and that was a sort of the argument we were making back in the early 90s, what's happening now is the expectation of that story and the sorts of questions they were answering is changing. It's getting a lot more complex. In the 1990s, it was, all, why are you so bad? And it was very targeted. And I'll give a couple of examples of that. In the sort of 2000s and the late 90s, these are sweeping generalizations just to sort of make a quick observation to help this talk. It's more, are you bad? I don't know. I don't know what that slide projector is for. I don't know where it's from. So reassure me that you're not bad. Yeah? And now, and we're hearing it today with the presentations today, it's just how good are you and how good do you want to be in the course of the next 30, 40 years? And if you actually look at those questions, they're very, very different. So let's just quickly build on that. 
in the sort of 70s and 90s, corporates were reacting to what I've loosely and sort of quite crudely called the protectionist agenda. Save the wells, save the ozone layer, save the rainforests. And there it was very high-profile single issues. The rainforest at stake. Oh, there's a company which sells lots of timber from rainforest. Let's attack them because of the harm they are doing or their product story is doing to the rainforest. Yeah. And here's a really good example of how that evolved into a very bipolar, black and white argument. The, 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 the white one, so actually if you read it, it's not actually a campaign literature against timber. It's one saying, every time you don't specify timber, you're destroying the planet. And of course that's what, what that was talking to about, what we would now call the natural capital benefit of having a forest and the natural capital benefit of managing a forest in a commercial way. Because what Friends of the Earth was saying, which is a smaller card in the middle... Since there is no governance of the world's forest, particularly the rainforest, every single stick of timber you buy, you're destroying a rainforest. And what you had were the brands like B&Q, who I worked for for 10 years, who were piggy in the middle on this. They didn't hold a single chainsaw. They were miles away from the actual forest on their supply chain links. But the product story was bleak and disputed. And then the agenda was really, what is the midpoint? What is the right answer to this? And what do we do? And you know the answer. Third-party certification. Originally very much FSE, FSE only, and now there's even a choice on what certification schemes you do. So a reassurance that the story of forests behind these wooden products is a good one. Not only because B&Q says so, but third-party certification, so entire core business product is reliant on that message. Yeah? The minimum ask of the consumer was actually minimum. It was a minimum ask of the consumer. We're just here to reassure you there's no bad news in this product. Yeah. It clearly worked as a model because there's, load, there's over 60 different stewardship councils now tackling 60 different issues. So there's something about this certification, third-party standards to purge the bad story from the product story because it goes on and on and on. And where we're now at, where we got to, say, in the, the mid-'90s, was actually every product has a story. There might have been a campaign against deck chairs at B&Q, but there was never a campaign against slide projectors from whatever brand made that slide projector. But when people found out, they actually realised there was work to be done on every single product. Yeah? And that sort of led to the next one, which is, are you bad? And the whole industry on supplier auditing. Important step forward, the checking of suppliers to make sure there was no bad news in their supply chain. They weren't waiting for the NGOs to say, I challenge you that you're destroying that forest in Malaysia. We're going out and check before it happens. And that's now standard governance in most retailers. And if it's not, they're naturally quite exposed, and brands as well. What was happening, of course, they were balancing all these issues. We were moving from a single issue associated with a single product to all the issues covered under the umbrella of what we would now call, or we were calling then, of course, the triple bottom line. Yeah? And I thought this is just a really interesting example of how complicating it's getting. You know, and what I'm saying here is a fair trade banana is a better banana, yeah? but is it a truly responsible or sustainable banana when you think about all the other issues, such as water footprinting and all the other issues, which at the moment these single labels don't carry. You know, an organic banana will have a different set of values to a fair trade banana. And I've actually been at conferences where people have said, is a fair trade better banana better than an organic banana? I don't know which one to buy. And I now hear that one retailer is putting a carbon footprint on them. Do I buy a low carbon footprint? You know? And it's all, it was all getting a bit sort of difficult because we were actually trying to put all labels onto sort of one product. Yeah? This is where we've got to now, though, which is a very different debate. 
How can seven to nine billion people, depending on you mean now or in 2050, which everybody talks about, have access to bananas? Do we currently grow and make all the products, let's not just make this about bananas, all the products in our daily lives, like that gentleman in that photograph, how do we make those products accessible to nine billion people? And the exam question, which has now been put on the table, we've all heard this before, but it talks to this particular agenda as well, is the way we currently make those products, the way those brands currently make those products, means that we would need three planets worth of natural resources. We've all heard this statistic. Yeah, it's almost getting a irritating. Yeah? And that's because it's come under the guise of a campaign message. Because if you were the supply chain director working for Brand Earth, what you're, you're actually really quite right. We've created this promise yeah, that some, one day a lot of people will have a high-quality life. But I, as the guy who's looking at the supply chain, is saying the numbers don't add up. We've got to fundamentally change the way we make these products or fundamentally change the products we offer in the first place to actually make this thing called high-quality and, in brackets, sustainable life accessible to our entire range of customers. We're not doing it in the right way at the moment. And that's what this new narrative you're hearing about today is really challenging. Do, can we actually provide this with the way we're currently making things? So the new question, which is what I'm saying, is just how good are you? Are you making it easier through your product story for your product to make, it, to make 9 billion lives accessible by 2050? Are your products making sustainable lifestyles accessible to 9 billion people? Or are you making it harder? You know, and it's a really interesting, it's a very different question to why are you chopping down the rainforests? The new question is, if more people bought more of your products, would the world be more sustainable? Or, if more people bought more of your products, would the world be more unsustainable? Yeah? And some of the companies, the Kingfisher Net Positive Narrative, is, is in that place. Unilever are in that place. We've got to keep making more money, but we've got to do it in a different way to make accessible lives more accessible. And you're seeing other companies like Virgin just talking. Look how they talked about in their sustainability report. We all make a credible contribution towards the cause of creation of sustainable lifestyles. And you can very quickly say, oh, but that long haul flying, what about Virgin Galactic and all of that sort of stuff. But the point is they're prepared to share the fact that they're wrestling with these questions internally. And there aren't simple answers. And what this new product story narrative is doing is putting it in the public domain. And so every now and then they just bait ranks and they say, let's do an experiment. Let's do something completely different. The answer might not be found in incremental change in our existing product story. It might be something completely different. So what Branson did was, here's $25 million on the table for somebody who can create the circular economy from carbon dioxide. Can I take CO2 out the sky, which is causing pollution, and turn it back into jet fuel or fertilizer or plastic? And the science says yes. The carbon footprint says yes. The economics say, flipping it, no way, matey. Yeah? But we all know that trend of how science, technology, and then rollout happens. New, completely different experiments. Yeah? More mainstream. B&Q Street Club. Rather than selling products which we're going to use for a few minutes, maybe we should help lend them to each other. A very different experiment of a new business model. You could argue this, this passed that exam question. It's making it easier for more people to have a high quality of life through the products and services they sell. Yeah? Swapping is another example. But what is also different from a brand stroke marketing angle is the marketing message is subtly different. It's gone from, look, aren't I good? I'm all FSC. 
clever me. So if you really want us to deliver this new business model, I need you, my customer, to swap. I need you, my customer, to be comfortable lending your power tool to your neighbour. So it's gone from showing off to asking. And so where we've now got to is how do you create a sustainable world as a brand? Don't offer unsustainable products like B&Q and FSC and ask your customer to join the journey. Very different marketing proposition. Yeah? And what I'm really saying here is a lot of us came here on the tube and we've probably heard this so many times you don't hear it anymore. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. And what I'm really saying here is a bit of fun to sort of say, mind the gap between responsibility and sustainability. Yeah? Responsibility is making sure you don't do anything bad and you understand where good's going. Sustainability is actually having a business model which will supply 9 billion people by 2050 in your service and gap in your service area. So what BITC is doing, we're now narrowing this complex agenda down to three very clear spaces. Yeah? The big boredom agenda. How do you have this conversation at boardroom level? How do you get boards to think about long-term, complex, fluffy issues when they've been programmed to think shorter-term, KPI, measurable issues? Some of this stuff you cannot measure, but you're going to have to manage it. Yeah? How do we get away from that, you can't manage what you can't measure world, to actually dealing with complexity and leaps of faith. Yeah? The answer is, do experiments in your business to test new ways of working. What do you need to ask your customer to do? Not how do you market your brand, how do you ask your customer to buy into this new business model? You can't swap without the customer. You can't street club without the customer. It's an ask, not a show-off. And how do you work with other organisations who you wouldn't normally work with to create that? FSC was a success because competitors worked together and, and brands worked with NGOs around the world to create the stand. How do you create these new unexpected collaborations? So to conclude, yeah, what I'm saying, we've known this, products are talking, internet, blah, blah, blah. We've heard all those lectures enough times. It's very easy now for product stories to be in the public domain. Yeah? Good CSR is having the entire story in the public domain and you're still sleeping well at night. Yeah. And still, don't forget, there's still a lot of organisations who really don't know how to handle bad news in their supply chain. Yeah? Sustainability is going the extra mile. I, you're thinking about how your product and service creates the accessibility of sustainable lives. What is your unique and important contribution to making sustainable lives more accessible to more people? Yeah? Another way of looking at it is having enough raw materials so that your service sector product sector could supply 9 billion people as and when they can afford to be in that type of lifestyle. Yeah? And finally, as sustainable brands will be the ones who are part of this sort of unwritten collaboration, coalition of lots of brands, policy makers, all trying to work out how 9 billion people are going to enjoy the right sort of quality of life and sustain that without trashing the planet, because if we trash the planet, we don't have a quality of sustainable life. That's really where I'm seeing this whole debate going. So what I'm saying in this sort of product story narrative is what's the question? The question is moving from, why are you so bad, you individual ozone-depleting product, to tell me you're not bad, every single product into this room. Okay, you've now done those two. Now tell me, how are you making it easier for everybody to enjoy a sustainable quality of life when there's 9 billion people on the planet in 30 years' time? Please tell me. And my, my challenge is, do you as business leaders know what your answer to those questions are? Because that's where the debate's going. So, we're now going to ask various companies, three companies who are going to sort of give, give their version of their product stories and their reactions to what I've just said. 
So, Vanina from Blah Blah Cars. Thank you, that was very interesting. Um, uh, I definitely have an answer to the uh, 9 billion question. Um, I think that Blah Blah Car has um, a great answer to that. Um, it's a company that I'm really proud to work for. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard about us. We're a French company um, and we're um, operating ride-sharing communities in 10 countries in Europe. It's relatively young in the UK. Has anybody here ever heard of us? Oh, Wow. Okay. Well, I can just skip that part then. I'm going to do it anyway for the rest of the guys who've never heard of us. So uh, what we do at Blah Blah Car is um, connect drivers who have empty seats and who are making a long-distance journey with uh, somebody who wants to travel in the same direction, basically, so they can travel together. Um, obviously, they share the cost of the journey, which makes it much more financially viable for a, for a motorist. And it's also uh, quite a cheap and convenient uh, travel solution for the passenger. Uh, we have about 5 million members, uh, over 5 million members in Europe now, and we transport about a million people a month. So we have a million people every month traveling together uh, and connecting through Blah Blah Car to find that, that, that travel, that shared travel opportunity. And um, at Blah Blah Car, I am brand, uh, brand lead, so uh, I've been invited to talk about what would my brand say um, which is slightly funny, as we're called Blah Blah Car. <laughs> so I can start by telling you why we're called Blah Blah Car. Um, when members sign up on Blah Blah Car, they fill in certain preferences because we don't just connect people who want to travel in the same direction. We also connect people who want to travel with each other. Um, so every member, every one of our 5 million members has a, uh, a social profile with information about themselves that means that somebody, another member of the community is going to be comfortable um, sharing that journey with that, that other member. And one of the things that you say when you join is whether you consider yourself in the car, blah, 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 or blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if I need to explain that, but blah, blah, blah basically means you're a chatterbox and blah means like you'd rather watch the countryside go by. So, um, so we have a very talkative brand. Um, we're really putting it all out there. Um, what can I say about it? We're, we're really a very different kind of business. So I, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm mostly here just to challenge the, the, the way that you think about products and brands because we almost don't have a product really. Um, we are a sharing economy company. So the value that we're creating is not, um, is not based in a product. It's actually what we have is more prosumers rather than consumers. So we have people creating value, our, our members, every time they offer a ride and decide to share a ride, are creating value between themselves. We're just an enabler, really. Um, you could call us a marketplace in a way. Um, and what, what does that mean, the fact that we're such a different kind of business? Well, we have a very different kind of brand. Um, and I think that's why we have such a funny name, because it speaks to that. It speaks to the fact that we're a community, not a product, um, that we're about um, a social experience, not about a consumption experience. And um, there, there, that has lots of consequences for our brand that we don't need to think about. I never ask my question, and I never, as brand lead, never have to ask my question, who am I going to get to be brand ambassador? We actually have ambassadors already. Um, we, um, we have experience levels on our site, and uh, after a certain amount of reviews and uh, time on the platform, positive reviews, of course, uh, time on the platform and uh, information completion, you become an ambassador. You are, you are given, you are awarded by the community the experience level of ambassador. And I think that speaks for itself in that um, 
the, another example is that uh, most of our growth to date has been driven by word of mouth, which is normal because when people travel together, one of the first things that you do in a blah, blah car, and I take obviously taken a lot of blah, blah cars, is think is ask people, well, where did you first hear about blah, blah car? Is this your first blah, blah car journey? So, and when you get to wherever you're going, uh, people, when you arrive, like say, if you're visiting your parents for the weekend, the first thing they say is, how was your trip? You talk about blah, blah, car. So word of mouth is just something that's naturally, it's inherent in our product, which again is not really a product. Um, and yeah, every customer experience is really a relationship. Um, so we don't need to worry about uh, creating a de delightful experience. People sort that out for themselves because they get together in a car and have fantastic conversations. I, I was speaking to a member recently, and then I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, She's called Helen. She, uh, her husband lives in Cornwall. Um, he's an artist, so he has a big studio down there. And she is a textile designer in London and um, has been commuting from London to Cornwall for years, like 10 years. Um, she's about 50. She has a grown daughter and um, really enjoys her lifestyle in London, has no plans to, um, to, to ever not live in the, in the capital. But her husband obviously lives in Cornwall, so she drives uh, on Mondays and Friday evenings and has tried to find organized lifts for years and a, a community meetup. It's a, another powerful thing about our brand is that we know a lot about our consumers we're, in that we, we spend a lot of time with them because we have, we have these very active communities that we, that we get together with and talk to. So I was talking to Helen and she was saying, um, I, I've always thought that this is always something that I wanted to do. I heard about Blah Blah Car a couple of months ago and it's changed my life. Um, she said, I quote, it has restored my faith in humanity. And, um, and she went on to describe how since she, she posted her, her, she offered her ride on Blah Blah Car, we have a feature that allows you to offer a recurring ride. So if it's a trip you make every week, you can just click and make it every week and there's nothing to be done. She's had three passengers, so a full car, for every trip. That's £20 per passenger. So £60 per car, that's completely covering her fuel costs. So her commute is no longer a cost for her in her budget. And um, she said she's, she's met over 50 people in two months, uh, earned about £1,000, well, not earned, because she's obviously, ju obviously just offsetting her costs. And, um, and then she even told me, because Cornwall is, generally we do intercity transportation, um, Cornwall's actually kind of out the way. Nevertheless, there are quite a lot of people who want to go there. She often invites her passengers back to her house where they wait for somebody else to come pick them up to do that last mile. And um, on Friday evenings, when she speaks to her husband before she sets off, he says, so who have we got this evening? <laughs> Just to give you an illustration of, the, of like how really fantastic the social aspect of it is. And, and I'm not sure that I really have a job when it comes down to that, because there's not much I need to do above just you know, tell the story of what people are doing with our, with our service. Uh, somebody also does the Cornwall weekend commute. Uh, res that resonates with me a lot. Um, Geraldine, do you want to give some of your comments? Yeah, um, first of all, say hello, everybody. I'm, I'm sorry that I was late arriving to the panel. Thank you for, for, um, for having me, Alan. Um, I'd like to just talk a little bit and pick up on some of the points that you raised mm -hmm. earlier because uh, they really resonated with me. And I'm not sure how many of the people here might have um, been in the plenary session earlier. Could you maybe raise your hand? Because I don't want to excessively repeat myself. <laughs> um, the, I really like your thought about the gap between sustainability and responsibility. 
And I was having a discussion with somebody earlier that actually the phrase CSR kind of annoys me mm. now. I think it's almost this outdated phrase that's almost in, in an old phase of, of sustainability. And I think now it's much more about sustainability in, in its broad sense as opposed to responsibility. And I think the, the companies that are really taking, shaping the space are, are really stepping more into that zone. They're not in the responsibility area because if they are, it's, it's the wrong conversation. Um, and I really agree that the conversations have changed here. And, you know, for us as a coffee company, it's not about... Um, you know, is there is this product certified or, or so on? It's more actually, will there be enough coffee for people in the world to drink? Coffee consumption is really growing. Um, is there is coffee a crop or something that smallholder farmers would actually like to grow? Are they going to make a livelihood out of it? And are those farming communities actually nice places to live? And are they going to thrive? And that's a uh, that's a real mix that that spans the the consumer world you know be that in the uh, the western world or be it in the the, the more developing world it's something that is, is you know affecting the coffee farmers themselves and also is going into the kind of the thriving community uh, space so it's it's absolutely important that um, that we answer those questions and it's not maybe as simplistic an answer as as we might have seen before um, and I mean I guess for us as a coffee company we're the second biggest coffee company in the world um, and we we really recognize that we need to take this broad view think of that that all of the things that we can actually influence um, and I really like this notion of, of shared value and uh, of this more virtuous cycle that, that I, I mentioned earlier whereby the, the things that we can do as a coffee company that kind of reach back that supply chain and make an impact in actually farming communities, change the circumstances of those communities, uh, change the, the, the resources that those farmers can have and that the communities have, that starts bringing then a positive impact to them. It's, it's bringing a better quality coffee ultimately for us. It's bringing that into our brands, driving consumer delight, hopefully, in the, the coffee they're drinking, uh, which ultimately then is driving our brands. So it's a much more kind of empowered space as well for us as a company, as opposed to something that's just a, a responsibility. Um, so I think it's, it's very much taking, taking a much more active, an active interest, I think, in, in the source of your, of your um, product, product supply. So it, it's really, really important. And so I, I really liked what you were saying about sustainability, responsibility, and just how the conversations have changed, because they have to. The world is so much more open. It's so much more transparent. People are genuinely interested in, in where their products are coming from. And companies need to think about sustainability, not in a simplistic sense, but actually sustaining sustaining the people that are making their products right, right yeah. the way through and sustaining business. And our last um, speaker is not Chris, but David from uh, Marshalls. Uh, thank you. I, uh, I will share lots of uh, pretty pictures because our products look good in pretty pictures. Um, again, I don't know what I'm going to do this. Uh, who knows Marshalls as a brand? Blah, blah, are doing slightly better than Marshalls. <laughs> <laughs> A lovely street in London, uh, full of our materials, uh, Exhibition Road, what a wonderful example. Uh, who are we? Uh, we've been around for a few years. Um, 
we're a public limited company. We're in the FTSE for good. Uh, two and a half thousand employees, uh, head office in Yorkshire. Um, 54 operational sites throughout the UK. I've uh, got a sourcing office in China. Uh, we've got some operational in Europe. We are a super brand, a business super brand. We've been in that now for three years, which we're very proud of. We triangulate most of the UK, but we also have an export and we will sell to anywhere in the world. In terms of responsible sustainability, um, I think this is very much like to the coffee. You have to have sustainable communities. Uh, now, if that's being responsible or being sustainable, I think the, the balance is, is quite difficult. I'm going to talk you through a case study, which I was asked to, to do, about some Indian sandstone. Now, in terms of a paving material, we are reliant on the geology of the world to tell us where we can extract materials from. Uh, but before we do that, we have to look at where it fits within our corporate responsibility. We can see there about how we're aligning our business values, environmental, economic, embedded sustainability and ethics in our business. We have a, a model which says we want to do a few things really well rather than lots of things poorly. In terms of the ethic and the uh, responsibility, um, ethical sourcing in our social uh, side as well as community responsibility are two things that we really hold uh, dear to our business and our brand. So the case study we'll take is uh, Indian sandstone. The first thing that we have to do is understand our supply chain. Uh, you have to get out there in the field and understand it. You then need to, and there's a word that came up before about planning, uh, but come up with a bunch of practical solutions. We talked about audit auditing. This is going beyond auditing. There's no point in just going to a factory once a year, once every two years, ticking a box and saying everything's okay. It absolutely isn't. You need to go behind these issues and look at some of the root cause of some of the issues you have. And then you need to build a brand around that. So in terms of this product, what does it look like? Uh, if you're uh, interested in a patio, that's what it would look like. Uh, but in reality, it comes on a big container ship and it is excavated in the ground in Rajasthan. Uh, where were we before Google and Google Maps? Uh, a is a Kota uh, in the heart of Rajasthan, just south of Jaipur. Um, Kota is the main town. I think there's something like 10 million inhabitants. That makes it a little city in Indian terms. So it's probably about the same size as London. Uh, to the right and above is really green and fertile. Um, if the containers get fed up of filling with sandstone, then there's lots of opium poppies grown in the area as well. Um, that keeps the lorry drivers awake and things like that. To the left is desert, and that's the sandstone uh, quarrying region. Uh, so what does it look like? It looks like that. Uh, environmentally, there is very little out there other than a lump of stone. So we, we, we go out there and we dig a big hole in the ground and we extract lumps of stone and we put them through factories and saws to bring into the UK. They then get further processed uh, in India and packaged and finally created and labelled. It's important when you first start supplying and, and you know we probably got everything wrong when we first started. You meet somebody that says they can deliver this and deliver that. Brilliant. But you need to get out there. You need to start engaging with people. You need to engage with your suppliers, but you also need to engage with civil society. Understand where improvements are. Understand what the issues are first. 
what we're also there is to encourage. You know, the Indian suppliers out there, they are uh, capitalists. Uh, and you've got to work with them to show the benefit of doing the right thing. But as importantly, which we've spoken about all about this, is don't forget your customers. The customers are the ones that are going to be buying your product and you have to ensure that you're engaged and that they understand what you're talking about. For us, doing nothing wasn't the option. We know there are some root cause issues out there. Child labour is endemic in India. Health and safety is a major problem. We're in a competitive marketplace. There are lots of suppliers putting ethically sourced stone. Probably doing very little. But you can make a difference. One of the first things that we did was collapse the supply chain into one supplier, where we then had sufficient um, collateral with that uh, company to make a change. So help them build factories. We engaged with, um, became a member of the Ethical Trade Initiative, and we, we took them out there to see what we were doing, get their experience of what we could do and where we were going right, and more importantly, where we were going wrong. Again, obviously, English is understood by a lot, but it's a Hindu area, so make sure it's in their language as well. Health and safety, again, in the factories is a big issue, so uh, the, there are things that you can do. In Rajasthan, it gets rather warm. The first time I went out there, which is about four or five years ago, half past eight at night, I get off the plane in Jaipur, it's 42 degrees. It's quite hot. You then start saying to these guys that you want protective clothing, and it's 42 degrees at, eight, at half past eight at midnight, or half past eight in the evening. You've got some issues there. In fixing the supply chain, it's not only about the companies, the tier one suppliers that we're dealing with. It's about the tier two, the tier three. It's about the communities that these people work with. To get the labour into a desert area, a lot of these guys are migrant workers. And as they move in India and the migrant workers, they lose a lot of their rights. So the issue was very much to put them back, give them back education, give them back medical help, give them back insurance. So put back into the community what they've lost of they've travelled to give you the product that you want to uh, sell. Uh, the symbol on the right-hand side, this is an NGO that we work with uh, in Rajasthan uh, to deliver this programme. We know in our supply chain the Tier 1 is easy. That's, that's as good as it's going to get. But we have Tier 2, three, Tier 3, Tier 4 suppliers, people that are quarrying the materials rather than just processing it. So it was going there. It was talking to them. It was making them aware of what some of the issues were. It was making them aware of collectively how we can work together for the better of their community. So it's about bringing together a team of all the supply chain. Look at your procurement teams. Look at your program managers. Look at the NGOs and the trade unions you're going to work with. Bring your customers on board. You will have auditors in there, but just don't rely on them. And then look at best practice advisors. Bring them all together to create a plan. On your road there, it's then it's not just a product. It's now got some value. And this is where we then end up calling this a Fairstone brand. It actually stood for something different to the other products that were in the market. Communicate it. We work with the Ethical Trade Initiative. We were the first uh, Stone member uh, to be part of that. There are now 10 companies 
in this sector. But more importantly, we're moving on. Uh, and only last month we signed a deal with uh, UNICEF. So we're trying to link to our consumers who can understand something. The consumers don't know who Hadoti are, this NGO in India, but they know who UNICEF are. So we're now pledging a, a pound per square metre of all this material going to a dedicated Marshalls Fund in Rajasthan. So what are the lessons? We've spoken about it, we've heard a lot about it. You have to commit as a business, and you've got to understand why you're doing it. You need to build this stable and trusted supply chain. Without that, you won't change anything. You need to uh, invest in the resources. You also need to consider your sphere of influence. There are a lot of things that uh, legally must go on. The Indian government have uh, legislation out there. International labor organizations have things. We can't fix everything. So you really have to understand what you can actually do. But talk to other people. Look outside your business. Look outside your business sector for some of the solutions that might be there to help. The biggest thing on this is don't forget to communicate. Communicate to both your customers and also the wider stakeholders. And just don't stop. Just keep going. It is a journey. So what would Indian Sandstone say about Marshalls? Thank you. Great. We've got about 15, 20 minutes for a discussion. So does any, anybody have some comments or observations they want to make? Um, Hi, Jim McClellan. Just a quick question about perhaps certification, uh, maybe particularly for Marshalls and blah, blah. Marshalls... Um, there wasn't, I don't think, opportunity for fair trademarks to be applied to stone, was there? Or, although you've called it fair stone, but also blah, blah. I was just going to ask as well about the idea of certification, um, uh, some kind of uh, validation of the appropriateness of the service, etc., in, in case of uh, incomers who were offering something similar who perhaps... Uh, hadn't vetted and policed their uh, participants. I'm just asking whether you could envisage that being a consideration if there were more players in your market over time. Shall I just take the, the first one? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, we did have discussions with Fairtrade, uh, but they weren't interested in our sector. So the issue then, right, well, we'll, we'll do it ourselves then. Uh, in terms of certification, we, we get a bit lukewarm um, on it, Pay, paying businesses to go and audit what you've already done rather than paying that money into the communities just doesn't feel right. I guess we're in a position where a lot of our market and our customers do trust what we say. A lot of what we do at Marshalls, we do like to have third-party uh, verification of the things that we say. Certain times they work, certain times they don't. In terms of fair trade um, or responsible trade, we don't know of anyone in our sector that we would trust um, to actually carry out this work. So at the moment, we're happy to plough our own furrow um, because we're not going to wait for a certification body to come along. So I'm, I'm not sure I understood what, what exactly we would certify. Ride-sharing experiences, um, obviously there could be some bad experiences in the same way any uh, sort of businesses in uh, travel or tourism that might have sharing economy uh, aspects to them. Could you envisage a scenario where 
by for people to trust the opportunities and to feel secure that some kind of certification or validation process might label might be introduced of the members themselves. Uh, yes, yeah, so. oh, I, I would say that 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 largely exists already. Um, the the power, the engine of what we do really is trust between members, and that's not accorded freely. That's accorded. I mentioned earlier the experience levels. So. Um, uh, every member has a reputation in the community that they build over time, um, which is based largely on um, on feedback, on documented feedback left by other members after travelling together. So I'd say that that's really the best form of certification. It's um, members have met each other in, in real life, of, and, and different to an Amazon rating, which you could say is is, is third party and has value. Um, you haven't actually spent several hours in deep conversation or not, but in a, in a confined space, shared that, that experience with somebody that you leave an Amazon rating for. So I'd say our ratings are, are among the most valuable that you can find online. Um, they're real testimonies to, uh, to, a, to a human exchange, uh, like a social moment, and, uh, and trust that was built between two people and then is then given back to the community so somebody else can use it to take their decision as to whether they want to or not share a ride with this other member. There is um, somebody who's been close to the certification movement for a long time now. I do find myself really asking the question, where is certification going? Um, because it really highlights what I was talking about, the difference between responsibility and sustainability. You know, if it's about making a promise that that bad thing, be it child labour or deforestation, isn't happening in the supply chain, certification really works. You know, we know it, we've seen it, that's why there's over 60 different models from fish to timber to diamonds. It works. But when it comes to encouraging innovation, um, new business models, doing entrepreneurship, basically... Uh, to create ways of serving a nine billion people in a one-planet economy sort of stuff, which in a way is what your business model is doing. It's a very different model of transportation. Um, it's very hard to certify and set a standard for entrepreneurship. It's almost a contradiction in terms. Um, and that's why I find this debate really fascinating, and that's why I think um, we do still need responsibility because it sets standards, it stops bad things, but we need a very different conversation, which is about innovation, entrepreneurship, and doing things in a fundamentally different way, where you could argue they need to be free from the constraints of standard setting, etc., etc., because that then sort of limits something we haven't done before. Um, I'm not quite sure if I completely resolved that sort of conversation in my head yet, but there is an important difference which we need to think about very carefully. Um, so... Gentleman at the front with the grey jacket. There's a microphone just two feet away. All right, we're going to be even louder now. <laughs> I'm a very loud American. <laughs> okay, first of all, for uh, blah blah, I'm from California. We have a lot of cars. Okay, we are very social, and we have no public transportation. Mm. Big market. I'll just, I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> um, I was going to go in one direction. <laughs> And then, Alan, you said something at the end. Um, I, I wasn't going to introduce myself. I represent one of the largest third-party third certifying companies in the world, uh, Bureau Veritas. Mm. Um, my comment with regards to you, as it pertains to the third parties, and I can only speak for my company, would be that engagement 
we have a lot of we see a lot of things out there in the world, good, bad, and not, and we have opinion on what is what is right, what would be a good way, and maybe not a good way. And so I think uh, some of the uh, at least external third parties out there uh, very well might be able to uh, collaborate mm. on providing uh, opinion or thought. My question. So that's uh, my second comment. My question, though, is with regards to uh, David, you brought up, and somebody in uh, the morning session brought up, uh, how do you know your supply chain? And, uh, and getting down to the tier four. And the real, the real issue, I mean, it was interesting hearing you talk about stone because you would think that stone wouldn't have a multiple layer supply chain, but obviously it does. You know, you talk about coffee, and you would think that coffee may not have a multiple-layer supply chain, but I'm sure that it does. But you were talking about uh, the projector, and this projector clearly has a multiple-stage uh, supply chain. And in the United States, there is now a law dealing with an issue uh, related to conflict minerals. And public companies in the United States are now struggling with how to report that because it's almost virtually impossible to certify. So my question is... How much information does the consumer have the right to know about what is in her or his products when certain levels are virtually impossible to be, sort of, uh, to be um, verified? In the UK, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, a little while ago, uh, earlier in the year, there was a major issue with horse meat in uh, food, which was labelled beef. So how much did the retailers know about their supply chain? How much did the consumer need to know? Well, obviously, if a beef lasagna is labelled beef, you don't expect to see horse meat in it. I guess for a lump of stone, it's, it's slightly different. Um, but interestingly, you're dealing with different cultures. Um, the first time I was out in India, I said, okay, how many of these quarries do we take from? Two. Right, okay. But you've shown me more than we've... Oh, five. Right. You sure it's five? Ten. <laughs> and they don't know how to answer the question. Um, we've now got a really good, strong partnership out there, and I've now found out it's 650. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. The thing about a quarry is... There is a hole in the ground. So it's traceable to the fact that we know where it is in the ground. The other issue is about geology. So a quarry might be good for, say, three months, and the seams might uh, move, they might change colour, in which case they're not now less suitable. So the supply chain down at the quarry extraction, because of the... Uh, geology in the hole in the ground, we, we know where it could have possibly come from. Uh, it's a matter of checking all of them, which is why we do a lot in the community because we can't guarantee that we're going to be taking from this quarry for, you know, five, six years. We might only be taking for two or three months, but those workers also still have the right. So we know that there is a geographical area that the stone comes from. We know the quarries in that area and therefore, with the relationship that we now have with the supplier, we're pretty damn sure of uh, where that material is. How much of that we can then share with the, 
customer because we wouldn't necessarily know. It's not like an FSC that's been labelled right the way from the forest through to the, the piece of wood in the, uh, the garden centre in a chair. We don't have that full chain of custody, but through the relationship that we have with the supplier, we, we know as a business exactly where it's all come from. So it's this, we're in this partway house between knowing it and being able to communicate it. Geraldine, can I ask you the same, you know? How traceable and how much do you share? I was making some notes to think about the, the certification points, and maybe I could okay. just put a comment cool. on that first. Yeah. Um, the, I think the, the question we always need to ask ourselves is what is the purpose of what we're doing and wh why are we doing what we're doing? And I think the, we need to think about that often for certification. So what, what is the purpose behind that certification? Is it just that we want some independent perspective on what we're doing? Is it that we want an independent verification of, of something that's happened out at the source of our product? Um, because the, the motivation behind that might, might lead us to kind of a, a different conclusion. And I think for, for consumers in probably the last 10 years in particular, as we've seen the growth of a lot of certification labels, and you know that, that growth has been a good thing for kind of maybe overall understanding, of that some products have a better story than others. At the same time, it's almost become like a, a simplistic equation in, in consumer terms, that something certified is good, not certified is bad. But actually, maybe a product that doesn't have a, that certification stamp that is third-party um, verified, maybe it actually has a wonderful story. It's just that that company didn't go to the trouble or for whatever reason of, of getting it independently verified. So I think it's... I think we're starting in, in the, the overall industry now um, to think of a new set of conversations. That kind of simplistic conversation, I think, of the last 10 years is almost, we're at the next stage. So certification has been a really good answer to a different set of questions, but actually there's a new set of questions now. Um, so that was just a, a thought on certification. Um, the... The question you asked was then how, how far back is your supply chain and how much do you put in the public domain? Um, I think that, I, and I'll speak for coffee um, mm. within Mondelez because that, that's what I know. Um, I think our, a certain proportion of our supply chain has been traceable, the, the certified parts uh, for the, you know, the last number of years. We're the largest buyer of Rainforest Line certified coffee in the world with some of our big brands like Kenko, for example. Um, but even so, the, we were still buying our, our coffee from you know, international exporters. It just happened that it had that certification stamp. Mm. We actually didn't have much visibility ourselves back beyond that. It was just we were buying it from somebody and it, it had that stamp. Um, I think with programs now like Coffee Made Happy, we are getting far more visibility ourselves in our whole supply chain. And what we really want to do is actually make that very much more transparent, I would say, as opposed to, um, to uh, you know, necessarily uh, uh, using another word. It's just transparent and, and, and open. And I think that's going to be a journey because it's a, it's a big supply chain and we source coffee from a lot of different countries all around the world. But I think it's important that we start making links all the way back to source and being just far more clear on 
where our coffee comes from, what are the kind of communities that are growing it, and what are the, the circumstances in those communities. So I think we're on a journey. I think it's, it's pretty, um, it, it's getting pretty transparent, but I think it's, the onus is really on us as part of programs like Coffee Made Happy that we, we, put, um, we put a level of transparency out there that, that gives, it the, gives people the information I think they're looking for because consumers look for that, but also you know, other stakeholders uh, also, also do that. And we, we have a responsibility back to the responsibility word, we have a responsibility to, to do that. Okay. It's roughly approaching for us, I'm going to take the last two questions with hands up. Uh, it's Bob Gordon at Nando's. Um, Alan, I wanted to ask you really, you made a distinction between responsible and sustainable. Uh, you also said we need to radically or fundamentally change the way we source our products or we need to source new products. We at Nando's source responsible chicken in that it's UK red tractor chicken, but sustainable chicken, I think, would be a far harder thing to do. In fact, I, I don't know what a, what a low-carbon chicken looks like. Um, I certainly don't know what a low-carbon, high-welfare chicken looks like. Um, I, I suppose my question is, uh, how urgent is this? Are we about to not be able to put chicken on the plate, or is chicken about to double in price? Uh, I suppose, Geraldine, it's a bit of a question for you as well. In the coffee context, you ta you've talked about uh, demand going up, and supply coming down because of soil degradation, et cetera, et cetera. So how urgent is this? Uh, what's coming next? What do we do about it? Is that to me? No. Go on, okay. While you're thinking you about that, I'll, I'll give you one. I'll take the other <laughs> question first, and then we'll give it because of time. Mm -hmm. yeah. But this is the last question. Um, thank you. Um, I'm Pierre Bogstead from Rainforest Alliance. Uh, I've been mentioned a few times, so I thought I'd better speak up. Uh, I wanted to raise the concept of, um, we've had transparency and, and other concepts, but I wanted to raise the concept of uh, expertise. I think that uh, certification is also a way in which expertise can be applied to a whole range of very complex issues that, uh, not, that are not easy to grapple with um, and are not e easy to find answers to. I don't think it's the only answer to those things, though. Um, but I wanted to sort of raise the question of how we can ensure that the right expertise is applied to very complicated issues that businesses may not ha have the expertise to solve um, when it is companies that are taking the initiative on sustainability. Okay, two very important questions there. The, the role of expertise on, in the complexity world. Um, and what does the future look like and is it, when is it ready to understand what the sustainable version of your product is and, and when do you act? And what I'm going to do is if you could choose to answer that question or both questions and then any other closing remarks and we'll go from you, David, towards me and then we'll, we'll finish the session. Yeah. Um, we didn't touch on it in the, in the presentation but we've done a full environmental uh, measure of Indian sandstone into the UK and in terms of uh, carbon, uh, it's about twice the amount of a uh, piece of concrete. Um, so we could make a concrete replica in the UK with about half the carbon footprint. Um, concrete isn't that bad. Um, in terms of a packet of crisp, it's about two tonnes of carbon to one tonne of um, crisp. Concrete is about 150 kilograms per tonne of product. So c concrete is a quite low carbon product. As we started working in India on the, uh, the social ethical side, 
Uh, in Rajasthan, it's a desert. They use camels. And I can tell you a camel is just over 1.1 tonnes of methane per year. Um, he managed to get rid of his camels and put fork trucks in because he thought animal welfare was going to be the next thing that we were going to discuss. So when you start looking at supply chains and you look at the holistic um, life cycle of all the issues you've got there, sometimes is this right or is that right? Sometimes it's not very uh, – uh, they are very difficult um, issues to grapple with. In terms of expertise, I, I think as a business we acknowledge that we are not expertise in this whole area of complete uh, sustainability and uh, environmental. And therefore, you know, we will employ what we believe are the right people to advisors and helpers in delivering the, uh, the message to the consumer that we want. Um, well, I, I, those questions aren't really relevant to me because they're about supply chain, but I, I do have some closing um, thoughts. Um, f for me, I think there are lots of different levels of things that have been evoked that can kind of come together in a, in a can come together in one idea. Like we spoke about a brand communicating about who they are, and that's, that was really the topic of, for today. Um, and moving on from that, there's certification, which is which is a more controlled way of of saying something about oneself and what one does. And then I, I think really much further down the road, there's changing the way that um, that things are done to the radical point that Blah Blah Car is changing the way that things are done, asking people to not buy anything from you in the end, but to actually um, pool resources, uh, exchange assets. And all of those things are different levels of, of interacting with a brand. Um, with a company, with a business, they're they're different, um, uh, yeah, different ways of 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 interfacing between a consumer and a company. And and I'd like to go back to what Alan said right right at the beginning about asking people to do things differently. So my point is that it's about interaction, right? So it's not we're not in a room deciding what is going to be sustainability for the next ten years, independent of the rest of the world. The consumers have to come with us. And they have to keep interacting with us. And we have to keep pulling them towards a more radical way of uh, putting their money where their mouth is and making this, this world livable to a great quality of life for 9 billion people. And so um, for me, it's about continuing that ask and keeping, keeping the conversation alive with them. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that. I think it is about doing things differently. And uh, just to pick up from the, the question from the gentleman from Rainforest Alliance, I mean, I think it's really important that there is always the right expertise in the area. Um, you know, we, you see companies stepping in to take more responsibility for their supply chain, to take more responsibility for the sustainability of the products they sell. I believe that's a good thing. I think it's about time companies did that. Um, it's maybe not something companies have done enough of in the past, and maybe the companies outsourced some of the, the work on that side to, to other organizations. I think in this new phase where companies such as mine are stepping into that world, we of course need to make sure that we don't do that blindly, and we need to bring the right partners on board and work with the people who actually know exactly what they're doing um, and have that expertise. Um, and so it's not like starting from scratch, it's just a new, a new chapter of this, of this journey. And I think that's a chapter that is required if we're to really 
solve some of the fundamental challenges of sustainability, particularly for a, a rapidly uh, populating world with, with increasing demand and, and reducing supply. So, you know, I welcome that. I think it's, it's time that happens, but we need to make sure that that phase doesn't happen without losing all, all the great things that, that it is being built on. It, it's just, I, I see it as the, the next logical chapter of the journey with more, more shared responsibility among a lot of the, the players uh, in, that, in, that, uh, in that story. Great. Um, well, it's my, I'm just going to sort of give my own sort of comments on, on the last two questions and in the form of a sort of summing up as well. I think, you know, there is a sort of a very clear space for the certification profession. Um, and I, I certainly do recognize the expertise they bring. And I also recognize the expertise of the wisdom of the crowds they bring by being the focus point where you get a lot of people up and down the supply chain to actually share uh, what they think. So it is a really important space. Um, the other thing as well, of course, it creates is a coalition of the willing. Everybody goes to those types of meetings and those discussions actually wants the solution. And they're prepared to work with people they've never met and in different sectors to actually reach that solution. So there's a fantastic role. And in a way, certifi the certification profession will always exist because of that sort of input they create. Uh, it might be just the sort of the focus on a black and white certificate as the output. There might be more flexibility in the future as we sort of enter a world of of the innovation, entrepreneurship and creativity we need to sort of invent these new business models. Which sort of really brings me nicely on to the sort of the second question as well about what will a sustainable chicken look like and when do we act? I mean, I love the question. Um, you know, and the fact that we don't know the answer to that question shows us the scale of the challenge we've got when we don't know the answer to that question for every single product we use and want to create in our daily lives. Um, but my answer almost would be a slightly facetious but somebody who's a major player in the chicken industry should be co you know, creating those coalitions and collaborations to actually start answering those questions and actually understanding you know, what values matter more, animal welfare versus carbon. Because that's what you're really wrestling with, is, is what, what trade-offs are we prepared to make and what is the biggest issue we need to solve in that. Um, when do you act? I think, is, again, it's very much that's an internal decision. Do you wait for the crisis to be so bad you have a business case? Um, or do you see a long-term opportunity which you can start growing now? Um, I mean, the, the, the crisis on power tool overconsumption doesn't exist, yeah? But we're inventing Street Club. The crisis on single-car usage, some would probably exist in some cities, and it's a bit of a nuisance, but it's not people marching down the streets and, and businesses and car manufacturers collapsing at their seams, but here is a business which is growing and growing and growing, yeah? So you act if you want to own the opportunity um, or you act when the crisis starts to bite. Yeah? But what was really interesting for me, you know, where I've had personal exposure and this is where I end, was the B&Q journey. Because, yeah, there was a little bit of heat. You know, one or two difficult letters, friends of the earth were beginning to ask us quite awkward questions. But it wasn't a crisis. B&Q wasn't, you know, the share price wasn't collapsing. We weren't losing customers. It was, the point was, it was like these guys are making a really interesting point. This is really interesting. You know, it's almost like we got intellectually engaged with the question they were asking us as opposed to being scared of the campaign which was mounting against us. It was like, this is fair. This is a really good point. Yeah. And, um, but from the moment we decided to get involved in creating the FSC to B&Q announcing that every single piece of wood it, took, it bought was FSC and by then alternative competing schemes, 
was 20 years. Yeah. So it took 20 years to rebuild that supply chain. I don't know how long it took you to do your work on timber or, or, or on cocoa and, and chocolate uh, and coffee, sorry. Um, but it takes, it takes a lot longer than it does for the problem to really bite and damage your brand. Yeah. So my answer to your question to everybody is you start now because it's not a problem. Yeah. And with that, I just want to thank our speakers uh, and all you guys, guys for coming. I've stolen 10 minutes of our time, so I better end now. So thanks very much.